Hey, well, good morning, Faith Church. I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 40, Psalm 40, as we will all summer in our series from the Psalms, and uh, I'm going to use the pattern that Pastor Mike often does and ask you a question. Have you ever? That kind of question. Um, Does an old song on the radio bring back memories of a place or a time where you were? I don't know if you listen to oldies uh, on the radio, and it's kind of funny because oldies are really different depending on who's listening, right? I mean, it's crazy when somebody says, oh, I was listening to oldies from 2008. Oh, Oh, goodness. Yeah. Music has a way of helping us to remember things. And uh, my my, uh, initial um, exposure to music was in the the classic rock of the 70s. And uh, a lot of the time when I hear those old songs, it, it certainly takes me back to when I was a teenager. And to be honest, a lot of that are not real great memories. Uh, I went to some really rotten concerts and just listened to nonsense for, for, for hours and hurt my ears even at one concert in, up in Colorado. But when I was uh, about 19 years old in college, Christ uh, saw fit to save me and give me a new heart and new ears. And uh, I was so excited to learn that there was actually music in the style that I liked written by people who were following God. Um, and one of, those, one of those people, one of those groups was one, one that's still around. It's U2, of all things, U2. And I went to a concert in Colorado in 1983, and it was June, and it was freezing cold in June. I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and it was about 40 degrees and raining and uh, kind of miserable and foggy, but also absolutely incredible because of the setting. And there was this song that they sang, and the name of the song was 40. And it was literally the scriptures from Psalm 40. And it just came to my mind, and maybe that's an odd way of selecting a psalm for us in the summer series, but it came to my mind, and it has stuck with me, and I also can get that song out of my head after the last several weeks of thinking about it and hearing about it. Here's the takeaway Here's the takeaway that we have from this psalm. If there's one thing that you could remember, it would be this, that Christ has delivered me that I might delight in him and proclaim him. Before we go any further, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and for our time together, that we might worship you in one accord and grow in our understanding, Lord, of how we might trust in your deliverance how we might delight in you, and how we might proclaim you. And as we we usually do, Lord, we lift up another church in our area, Mosaic Church of Albuquerque and Pastor Adam Viramontes. I pray, Lord, that that body this morning and even right now would be lifting up your name, would be rejoicing in the goodness of who you are, and would be celebrating uh, alongside of us, Lord, as we give you glory today. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, the first part of this message is in the first five verses, and it's under the banner of praising and proclaiming the deliverance of God. This is a psalm of David, and so we're going to hear now the first five verses of the psalm that he's written uh, to God's glory and for our benefit. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And in the very first verse of this psalm, we see a a truth that is just so hard for, for many to see, and that is this. We are drawn up from the bog. And you know what? The reason that's hard is that it's hard to recognize that we're in the mud. We're in the bog. We're in a pit. And it's a pit of our own doing. We're covered with mud and we cannot get out of it. The world would say that's foolishness. No, I'm right where I want to be. I'm happy here. And when you ask someone about salvation, they would say, salvation, what, what do I need to be saved from? This is not a bog. This is my home. This isn't mud. It's beauty cream. Uh, and this is not, I'm not stuck. I'm just resting. You know, the world has just got it all wrong. And it's very difficult sometimes to look at ourselves in the mirror. I'm kind of reminded of that Peanuts character, one of the kind of pitiful kids name, whose name was Pigpen. Remember him? And everywhere he walked, there was this cloud of dust that followed him. And I just always felt so sorry for him. Like, does he have no self-awareness at all? He had a nice heart. I remember one time he said, I've got gumdrops I want to share with everybody. And he reached into his pocket and he said, they're all kinds of different colors. And then he looked and said, oh, well, now I guess they're all black. And yeah, no, none of his friends wanted his gumdrops. Um, you know, the offer of salvation is totally irrelevant if we don't know that we're lost. And my prayer for you or the, uh, my prayer for the, the friend or the family member that you're sharing Christ with is that they or we would be able to confess verse 2 of this psalm. I am in the pit of destruction by my own sin. It's a hard thing to admit, a hard thing to confess. Only God can reveal it to us. Then there's a second part of this very uh, first couple of verses, and that is that he set my feet upon the rock. He didn't just lift me out of the mud. He set my feet upon the rock. First of all is that little word, he. God did this. You didn't do this. I didn't do this. We can't do this. We cannot get out of the bog. It reminds me of those, uh, all those National Geographic videos of some poor animal stuck in the mud, you know, and it takes an army of people to rescue them. And, and there is no way that we are able to get ourselves out of the predicament we're in. What did David do to save himself? He did nothing. Well, okay, he did two things. He waited patiently for the Lord, and he cried out to God because then he says, that the, that the Lord heard his cry. That's all he could do. That is all he could do. Now, not only did God rescue David, pulling him up out of the mud, but he set his feet upon the rock. And that's really important because if, if there isn't two parts to this, then we end up right back in the mud. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that the wicked are like pigs after a bath and they run right back to the mud pit. So God sets our feet upon the rock. 
And that rock is Christ. That rock is Christ. And you know, we know that. We know it for sure from God's Word over and over again. Dozens of times in the Scriptures, Jesus Christ is called the rock of salvation. I'll just give you a few examples. Psalm 118, Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, Acts 4, and 1 Peter all say that Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the one the builders rejected. In Isaiah 8, in Romans 9, and in 1 Peter 2, the Bible says that Jesus is a rock of offense and a stumbling block for those who don't know him. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in that dream, all the kingdoms of the world are destroyed by the rock which was not made by human hands, and that rock is Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul teaches that church in Corinth that their fathers in the desert drank spiritual drink from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus actually speaks of himself and asks people to trust him and follow him, and he says, that is the wise man who builds his house upon the rock the rock of Christ himself. Now, I am not an expert on foundations and buildings, but I do have a little experience. Um, a number of years ago, we broke ground on a, on a lodge up in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Some of you have actually been there, and uh, it's really a, a beautiful place. When we were designing it, uh, we spoke to two different builders to try to get quotes on it. The first builder looked at the spot we had picked on the land. It was kind of flat, and still is, by the way, and he said, oh, this will never do. Um, there's all this rock, and we're going to have to blast the rock out of there so I can put down my concrete foundation. This, yeah, this bedrock is really hard to move. In fact, I think we should build it way up on the hill, about 300 yards up the hill, and build a road to get up there. And I just thought, that does not sound good. So I met with a second builder, whose name is Homer. I love that. He's a house builder named Homer. And... Uh, <laughs> I told Homer what the first guy said about it, and he just laughed. He literally laughed and said, that bedrock is the best foundation that we could ever have. We're going to build that house right there, right on that rock. And we'll have to build some foundation on the front part where, where it, it extends away from the rock, but you'll never have a better foundation than the one that's already there. And I love that. And that's the guy we went with, and that, that house is immovable, and I'm so grateful for it. Jesus Christ is the only firm foundation for our salvation and for all that we do and all that we make and all that we build with our lives. Jesus Christ is the only foundation. And, and David is making that crystal clear right here in the very beginning verses of our psalm. And moving on into verse 3, uh, David is praising and proclaiming the Deliverer. In verse 3, he says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. First of all, this is God's song. It's his story. It's his message for David to proclaim about him himself. And I think there is a pattern here. You know, David wrote 73 psalms, at least. Uh, some don't say who the author was. And he was prolific at telling God's stories. He told of what God's faithfulness to him. And I think that's a challenge for us. Now, not many of us are songwriters, but we have, a, we have a story to tell. It might be through music. It might be through a poem. 
It might be through a story that you would write about what God has done in your life. It could be your own journaling, or it could just be telling the stories about what God has done in your life. I think it's a, it's a marvelous thing, and I'm obviously trying to do that this morning. If any of you have heard me speak before, you know I often tell stories from the pulpit, and there's two reasons. The first one is I get to tell the whole story and nobody interrupts me. I like that. <laughs> and the second one, which is far more important, is that it's my desire that I would tell you of what God has done in my life so that you would glorify him. And that's, I think, the key, and, and that's the intent that David has here, and I think it's a, a, a challenge for each of us. Let me tell a quick one, because I already introduced the fact that when I was a teenager, um, I was nothing like I am today. Um, the reality of me as a teen was that I drove my parents crazy because I was such a lemming, and that's my mother's word for me. I think a lemming is some kind of little rat or something that they, they follow each other over cliffs, according to the urban legends and stuff. Uh, followers, follower. I was always in trouble, not by my idea, but because of my brother's idea or because my friends were doing something stupid and I was in the backseat of the car and I got in trouble. I was a chameleon. I wanted so badly to please whoever I was with, a people pleaser to a fault. And then... The Lord lifted me up out of my mud and set my feet upon the rock of Christ, and he taught me to lead. One step at a time, he taught me to lead. First, it was by leading by example, as I shared Christ with my friends and, uh, that uh, had seen a change in me. And then when I got married, I was learning to lead in a, in a marriage uh, as God's, uh, God's man for, for the two of us. Later on, when the children came along, I, I pray that I was a leader, not just by example, but by teaching as well, uh, in the bringing, bringing up of my, my three awesome children. Um, later, I was asked at work to become a manager and a leader, and it's the craziest thing, but I fit fairly well into that. And then at church as an elder for the last 15, 16 years, it's really been a privilege for me to... Uh, be one of the leaders here at Faith Church. You don't know me and where I came from. If you did, you would proclaim with me that God has done a great work in my life <clears throat> because this is not who I am on my own. Um, I can say this with David. I can say it clearly. Christ has delivered me that I might delight in him and proclaim him. So how does that happen? How does God pull off such a miracle? It's... it's spoken to us by David and, more importantly, by the Lord in verses 6 through 10 of Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. There's kind of two ways of looking at this, and we'll start with with David himself. The, these words are written and acknowledged by David, and he is thinking of himself um, and God's appointment of him as, as a leader. Uh, I think he was probably thinking about Deuteronomy uh, 17, verses 18 and 19. And it, this passage speaks of the king. It says, When God's appointed king sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and that shall be with him, and he, he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. I think David looked into the law of God's word and saw himself, saw himself clear as could be. I'm the king. God wants me to proclaim him. But more importantly, even more critically for us today, there's deeper meaning. There's deeper meaning to these words uh, in Psalm 40 because they're revealed in Christ. They're clearly revealed in Christ. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to spend a, a moment in verse, first in verses 5 through 7. And the, the passage in Hebrews 10 is going to look an awful lot like Psalm 40 with a very, very important twist on it. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 5, says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, this is, this is incredible stuff. These words were written by Christ. That's what it says right here. Christ said these words. They were written by Christ, they're about Christ, and they're fulfilled in Christ. That's the joy, the incredible truth of these verses from Psalm 40. And then just to help us, sometimes it's hard to interpret the Bible and sometimes it's not. And I'm grateful for Hebrews 10 and verses eight through 10. In case we're having any trouble, the author of Hebrews helps us with interpreting what we just read. The author says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings or burnt offerings or sin offerings, though they're offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that something? All of Hebrews, and especially chapter 10, tells us that we are justified by faith in Christ as the perfect offering that could, that could take away sins when none of the law could do that. And, and, and this is so important, the offering, the sacrifice of Christ also enables us to grow in him as Christians. We are sanct the, the words here are we are sanctified. We are, or we are allowed spiritual growth through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And there's a life-changing conclusion that we have to take from this part of the scriptures. It's kind of shocking. God hates our works, our offerings, and our religious practices that are disconnected from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God hates it. God hates our works. He hates our offerings. He hates our religious practices that are disconnected from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross because they can do nothing to save us. Nothing. They cannot save us. And they can do nothing to help us grow in maturity except by being connected to that work of Christ. 
We cannot just do this ourselves. We can't save ourselves, and we can't help ourselves to grow. So when I uh, recently, for various reasons, was looking at some demographic studies about the, uh, in the city of Rio Rancho, one of the things that I discovered was that in the last six years, Rio Rancho is becoming more religious. That was one of those Barna studies. It's becoming more religious, and, um, but that meaning of that is a little different than perhaps you might say. In the, at first, you might celebrate it. But I think it's true, and I'll tell you why. I, this is just a practical thing, but Linda and I live about six or seven minutes north of here on uh, basically Abrazo and Unser, okay? And about, I don't know, three blocks west of Unser. If we were to take an afternoon stroll and uh, say, well, we want to go a half a mile and then turn around, we could go right on Abrazo and then right on Unser, we would run into seven churches in a half a mile. The first one we'd see on our right are the Unitarian Universalists. Um, they're, they're known because they have a labyrinth in, the, in their backyard. Now, that's the oddest thing. Uh, I have no idea how that fits into their, uh, what they do. Um, then the next one on the right is the Liberal Catholic Church. And that's their title for themselves, not, not mine. Then on the left is a pretty good-sized United Methodist Church. And then almost in the same parking lot, next to a barber shop, is a little tiny Bible chapel. And then you keep going, and right at the corner of Unser and Abrazo is the Lutheran Church on the, on the east side. And make a right turn, walk a half a block, and the community Missionary Baptist Church is right there. And then you keep walking, and you'll run into the, the door Christian Fellowship. Seven churches in half a mile, and a lot of them new. And so I'm suspecting, I have not been in any of them, so I'll make no judgment on it, Except that labyrinth thing, that bugs me. I won't, I won't go there. Um, the, uh, they, have com- they likely have a lot of common characteristics. They probably have a place to sit, chairs or pews. There is likely a cross somewhere in, in the church or on the building. Um, for sure they have coffee, like we do, right? Um, there's a pulpit and somebody up front, a priest or a pastor or a leader of some kind, right? There's probably prayer during the service of one kind or another. They likely sing songs. Um, There may be Bibles in the pews or somewhere in the church, I think. Um, God's name is mentioned, and even the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted up. As we read Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, the conclusion is that God may or may not desire or take pleasure in any of it. He may or may not. So what's the key? What, what is the key that says, I'm pleased with, with the, the offering I hear from one church and not another? The key is lifting up the name of the perfect sacrifice and the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only hope of salvation and the only hope of our sanctification. Is that happening? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Is that happening? And, you know, I could judge other churches all day, but here we are at Faith Church. Now, I can promise you as an elder, that is our heart, what, what I just read there, that we would lift up the name of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the only hope of our salvation and the only hope of our spiritual growth. But then we, each of us as individuals, are challenged. Are we doing this? How is that going? Do we show up with that kind of a heart? Or do we show up on a Sunday morning and almost immediately get kind of bored because of all the 
all that music, and you have to stand for so long, and it's kind of tiring, and I would much rather uh, maybe be somewhere else. Uh, maybe because we're so exhausted from all the things we were doing all week in the name of the Lord. And we come to church, and we're just tired, and we're not really all that interested in interacting with other people or with, more importantly, the Lord himself. Um, do we give our tithes and offerings with the same kind of spirit that we write that check to Uncle Sam when it's tax time, like it's some kind of obligation and duty, and we wish we could maybe find a, another way to, maybe another deduction and kind of get out of it. You know, it's just, there's nothing in the heart for it. Do we enjoy our coffee and our fellowship more than we enjoy the presence of the Lord himself? Now, I can't answer that. There's times that those, those emotions and feelings where, where we're practicing something kind of religious uh, seems to be uh, ebbing and flowing in our lives. And we all go through dry times. Um, and I've gone through them myself. Uh, there's, there's no way to solve all of that in a, in a moment here. But there is one key, and it's right here in our passage from Psalm 40, one way to perhaps address some of these uh, challenges for ourselves. And that is sharing about God's faithfulness. Sharing about his faithfulness. We see that in verses 9 and 10 so crystal clear. Here's what David said. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O God. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David is faithful to share and speak about what God has done, and specifically to the congregation, to God's people. This isn't just witnessing. This is just proclaiming God being good and what he's doing in our lives. It's obviously what I'm trying to do this morning, probably not nearly as well as David, but I'm reminded of, of a really a favorite scripture that I have in, in, in mind, and that's from Philemon, verse 6. Um, that scripture says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Isn't that something? It sounds kind of backwards. When I first read that, I remember thinking, no, 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 it's the other way. I need to get to understand every good thing I have in Christ, and then I'm going to be sharing with people. And, he's, and, and God is like, no, I want you to share about God's goodness so you will understand God's goodness. Because in the, in the sharing is where we learn. And I, I, can show, I can give you an example. If I gave you a challenge right now, and I won't do it because it would create chaos, but to turn next to somebody and to the person next to you and tell them something God, good that God has done in your life in the last few days. In doing that, you would say, oh yeah, I remember that. God was faithful to me in this, in this past week. So we can't do it right now, but I'm giving you a homework assignment, okay? Before this upcoming week is out, I want you to turn to somebody in your family, a friend, a total stranger, somebody at work, and tell them of something that God has done in your life. And I guarantee that your faith will grow from doing that. And maybe theirs as well. But what's most important is that we would be willing to speak up and share what Christ has done. Christ has delivered me that I might delight in him and proclaim him. And that's the homework assignment that I'm giving you. It was really fun. I had two people after first service come up to me and share something that Christ had done in their life this week. And I thought that, that was cool. 
And I was blessed by it, and I know they were as well. Let's keep going. In, uh, this, the third part of this message comes from verses 11 through 15, that we are continually being delivered. This is not just a one-time event that happened long time ago. David says, starting in verse 11, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! David is saying, Lord, deliver me from my enemies and from the trials of my life. A couple weeks ago, I spent an entire message on, on trials and on, on enemies and on attacks, and I, I certainly won't go through that again, but God, it, God was clear that he's, he's in charge of these things and even brings them about for his glory. He does them that, that our faith might grow. He, he, uh, he brings about trials to strengthen us and to purify us and help us know what is from God and what is not in the refiner's fire. He uh, helps us to reflect the refiner when we are being refined as a precious metal. And then he promises us reward for all the, the difficult things that we experience because we are faithful to proclaim his name. And David knows and reminds us that we are to pray continually in these trials. They could be long prayers, long pouring out of our heart, like David's prayers in the Psalms are sometimes pages and pages of prayers as he does business with God and, and begs him to, to deliver him. But as Chris Risk said last week, they could also be a prayer along the lines of, oh God, help me, four words or less. I think about Nehemiah. Do you remember what happened to Nehemiah? He was in front of the king. He was uh, one of the uh, king's, uh, he was a cupbearer to the king. And, and he was so despondent over what was going on in Jerusalem that he was sad in the presence of the king, which is a really bad thing to do. And the king confronted him and said, Nehemiah, what is wrong with you? What's going on? Why are you so sad? And he was scared to death. And then the scriptures say, then I prayed and told the king. It's like, what do you mean you prayed? What did you do? I mean, he didn't leave and go in his prayer closet. He said, oh God, help me. And then he opened his mouth. And it was an incredible thing as he shared with the king, the Lord granted every request that Nehemiah offered. We are called to pray in the midst of our trials and even asking the Lord to deliver us from the difficulties of today. But there's an even more important reason. David was delivered from the body of sin and death. Delivered from the body of sin and death. Look back again at uh, verse 12. My iniquities have over taken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails me. David is talking about a prayer of deliverance from himself and his own sins. And you know, for us, it might be that prayer like David for God to save us. Oh God, save me. Help me. Have mercy on me. I am in the mud, and I can't get out. I have made a mess of my life pull me out of this mud and set my feet upon Christ and save me. 
That might be the prayer. That, that might be exactly the prayer that some of us need to pray today. That's being justified by trusting in the atonement and the sacrifice of Christ for our sin. It could also be the ongoing deliverance from sin in our lives that we read about in Hebrews 10.10, that by Christ we will have been sanctified through the offering of his body once for all. And, you know, sometimes we neglect to pray and ask God for mercy when it comes to spiritual growth. We get it right about the salvation thing. Salvation, that's grace, that's a gift. I have to receive that. I, I uh, trust in him, I believe in that. I believe in him and all that he's done for me. And now it's up to me to live the Christian life and do good things for God the rest of my life. You know, like one of those wind-up toys. Like God did the winding up and he set me loose and there's no grace anymore. Where'd the grace go? And I can't get anything done and it's a mess. And then like those toys, you just go in circles and peter out. Because we need Christ to accomplish his work in us for, the, for the, all of our lives all that we're going to do. Christ has delivered me that I might delight in him and proclaim him and grow in him. All of it, all of it is grace, not just the moment of salvation. And then finally, there's just some incredible benefits for us in, in proclaiming God, his faithfulness and entrusting in him. And it comes in the last two verses. It's my joy in the Lord in verses 16 and 17 of this passage. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continuously, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. There's a, there's a couple important things we need to look at right here. First of all, this is a commandment. There's a commandment to rejoice in what God has done in our lives. It, it might sound unusual to, to think that God would command us to be joyful, but he over and over again commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a joyful, it's an emotional, it's a personal interaction and response to God for what he has done for us. It, our lives should be so overflowing with gratitude that we cannot stop telling others and say continuously, this is what David said, I will say continuously, great is the Lord, great is the Lord. In all these Psalms, every one of them have, has that theme. Great is, my, is God my Savior. Now, you might argue and say, yeah, but you don't know what's going on with me. You don't know how hard my life is. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I've lost. And you don't know about my sin and my, my, my disconnection from God because of all the the sin that's going on in my life. And you're right, I don't. But I do know about David's because we read about it in the scripture, right? David had more enemies than we will ever have friends in our lives. David had people left and right and up and down and more problems, more issues, more challenges than all of us combined, I would guess. And, and you talk about a sinner, Oh my goodness, David was an adulterer who murdered a man to take his wife. And he, he is called by God a man after his heart. And David, in spite of all that happened in his life and all the failures of himself, says, great is the Lord. 
He is a, truly a man after God's heart. He longs for God. He desires God. He finds joy and meaning in relationship with God. He has exchanged the pleasures of the world for God himself. And in God, he's become fully satisfied, fully satisfied. And you know how that happens? It's because of David is delighting in who God is and who he is. He's delighting in who God is and who he, who he is. Now, he wrote these words, and from a worldly perspective, that's almost silly. He says, I'm poor and needy. David, King David, poor and needy. What? That's like, you know, that's like Bill Gates saying I'm poor. You know, it's almost, it, at one level, or, or Elon Musk saying, oh, I've just got so many problems, you know. And the world would just say, that is just utter nonsense. You, you're the, David is the richest man, perhaps, in the world and the most powerful and the most unneedy from a worldly perspective because he had everything. But what he is saying is that he is genuinely, spiritually needy. What a tremendous thing for him to say about himself. And then he immediately transitions to the Lord himself and who he is in Christ. He, he says, the Lord is mindful of me. The Lord takes notice of me. He loves me. He extends grace to me. He's adopted me. He's praying, preparing a seat at the banquet table for me. David was not delighting in riches or power or anything of the world, but he was loving just being a child of God. And, we, and there's one other way, one more thing that we need to add, because if all else fails, we need to look to eternity, and that is enjoying God forever. In fact, Saying if all else fails makes it sound like some kind of consolation prize. And that's absolutely ridiculous because being in the presence of God forever is the prize. That's the whole point of all of it. And sometimes the only deliverance from these trials of our lives is to consider when Christ will return or when he calls us home. It may, it may well be today or it may be decades from now that... that uh, that we get to finally experience being fully delivered. Psalm 30, verse 5, says that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And that morning might be tomorrow, but it may well be your first day in heaven. It may be that first moment with him when all is finally made right, when all the things that we've prayed for for all our lives have suddenly come to be and we are in the presence of God, free from sin, free from enemies, free from the mess of sin in our lives and completely in rejoicing in him. And that's that morning, that's that moment that we'll be able to fully say, Christ has delivered me that I might delight in him and proclaim him and I will do this forever. Father, I thank you that your son was faithful and obedient and did not hesitate to suffer and die for us so that we could be made right with you. You offered your son as the only perfect sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. May we forsake religion for the sake of a savior. May we be delivered by you, delight in you, and proclaim you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.